work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription what hey what's that we're we're on on right now this is on oh oh hi everybody this is mick from the past and the curious mick sullivan that is thank you for tuning in We've got two really interesting stories this month. First off is a man named Edward Moybridge who took some pretty spectacular photographs, some world-changing photographs too. Huh, strange man. Also, we have a story about Tycho Brahe. Some people say Tycho, some people say Tycho. I talked to an astronomer to get permission to call him Tycho because it was pretty important for the rest of the episode because I did a song called Tycho Tycho, which is a really great song that I really love. And you know, it just made sense. I had to time together that way. You say Tico, I say Tycho. I mean, I say Tico, you say Tycho. Something like that. Anyway, last but not least, March 3rd is just around the corner, you guys. And that is the anniversary of the Kentucky Meat Shower. So you need to start making your plans right now. One good way to celebrate would be by reading my book, The Meat Shower. March 3rd, don't forget... Edward Moybridge was born in 1830 in Kingston-upon-Thames in England. His birth name was Edward Muggeridge. But as he marched through the circumstances of life, he would change his name many times. Such a thing was pretty uncommon in the 1800s, but he was a pretty uncommon man. His hometown was the historical site of coronations, where the early British kings were crowned in ceremony. And the earliest of these monarchs were Saxons. And perhaps inspired by that, the young man would change his name to Moybridge and adopt the old spelling of his first name, Edward. The vowel-heavy spelling E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. It looks like Edweard, but sounds like Edward. Seeking adventure, he left for America at the age of 22, telling his grandmother that if he didn't succeed in the lofty goals he had for his own life, he'd never return. He arrived in New York with a bunch of extra vowels in his name and little else. He worked there for a bit, but was thirsty for more, so he left for California soon after. It was 1855, during the gold rush, when scores of people headed west to mine for the valuable metal. He sought his fortune through other means, though he opened a bookstore in San Francisco. The city was growing and the people had money to spend. By most accounts, he was mild-mannered and his business was pretty successful in the bustling city. In 1860, he made plans to head back to Europe for a visit and to do some business, but he missed the boat. So instead, he booked passage on a Conestoga wagon across the American continent to head back east and from there, he would sail to his native England. Conestoga wagons were the common covered wagon that you see in all of the images of westward travel. It was a fateful trip, and the first time that a horse would fundamentally alter his life. These wagons were pulled by horses. 
The one carrying Moybridge was pulled by a team of six Mustangs. But somewhere in Texas, the horses pulling his wagon broke loose and darted off, leaving the wagon cascading on a high narrow trail above a rocky fall. The driver couldn't get control and the wagon tumbled, loaded with passengers and their belongings. Thinking quickly as the accident was unfolding, Edward tried to cut an escape hole in the wagon's cover, but in the commotion, he was thrown from the vehicle and hit his head on a rock during the fall. He recovered from the head injury in Arkansas for three months, though he had no recollection of the accident. One of the other passengers had to tell him what had happened. In addition to some memory problems, he now saw everything in a disorienting double vision. Edward also displayed definite personality changes. It was a brain injury, and as you might guess, these can have a great impact on a person. In his case, the injuries came with aggressive episodes, grandiose thinking, and general unusual behavior. The people who had known him before noticed a distinct difference in his personality. After recuperating more in New York, he headed back to England, where he stayed for several years. When he returned to America in 1867, he considered himself a photographer, having learned a lot about the new art form, and he had acquired some very nice equipment, which he had brought with him. It was still a developing art. In fact, the first photograph in history was made in France just four years before Edward was even born. By the time he was working in the 1860s, the technology was still very limited and far from the powerful cameras that we carry in our pockets every day. Edward's equipment filled an entire horse cart. In addition to the new career as a photographer, he also sported an enormous beard and he called himself by a host of new names, including Helios. This was not the same old Edward. His photography made an impact on the world. He had a definite fascination with stopping time. Just a few years after a man named Matthew Brady changed America by photographing not just the people of the Civil War, but the battle scenes and carnage, Moybridge was documenting, in beautiful detail, some of America's most amazing and mysterious natural sights. If you've never been to Yosemite Valley, you've still probably heard about its staggering beauty. This led to it being among the first of the lands to be designated as national parks. But before it welcomed hordes of tourists to gaze at its beauty, Moybridge made some of the first and certainly some of the best photographs of the amazing land. Some of them are so amazing they look like epic landscape paintings. Soon, everyone wanted a piece of Edward Helios Moybridge. The same year he came back to America, the Secretary of State, William Seward, negotiated a deal to buy Alaska from the Russian Empire. But for years, this was called Seward's Icebox, or Seward's Folly, because most people thought it was a costly mistake to buy the enormous swath of northern land. In an effort to convince people of its value, the government hired Moybridge to join an expedition, travel with his immense photo equipment and a darkroom, and photograph the land, resources, and native people of the territory. They are some of the most important documents we have of that time period still today. But it was back in California that his fame truly solidified. And it was largely thanks to a man who would give his name to Stanford University. His name was Leland Stanford, and he had a problem. He was a robber baron, and though this was a problem for a lot of other people, this wasn't his problem. 
As a so-called robber baron, he, like several other industrialists of the late 1800s, was rich and powerful. But he had gotten that way through some pretty shady and morally questionable ways. He used political influence and connections to get rich, not to mention taking advantage of many less fortunate people. He had been the governor, head of the railroad, a horse breeder, and he owned what was at the time the largest winery in the world. On his gigantic estate, he raised 800 racehorses. Feeding these horses alone was an expensive task. In order to do so, he also operated a 60-acre carrot farm just for horse food. So you may ask yourself, what does a guy like this have to worry about? Mr. Muggeridge, I have a problem. That's not my name. Mr. Moybridge, I have a problem. Try again. Yeah, weird. I have a... Wrong you... again. Call me Helios. Helios? That's right, Helios. As in the ancient Greek personification of the sun? Bingo! Okay, Helios. So I have this theory. And it's more than a hunch, but I just can't prove it. And I may or may not have bet money on it, so I need an answer. So how can Helios help? Well, Helios, this concerns horses. You see, I believe when a horse runs, at some point in its stride, all four of its feet are above the ground. So at some point, the horse is touching absolutely nothing, yet still moving forward. But it happened so quickly that I can't be certain. Do you understand? Yeah, Helios digs that. You want me to prove it with pictures? Helios, I'd like that very much. It's gonna cost you some money. Got plenty, don't worry. Cool, I'll get crack-a-lackin'. Now, it was actually a pretty common disagreement of the time, and Leland, with his stable full of horses and pockets full of cash, was in a unique position to solve it. He just needed someone like Moybridge, Helios. the best, craziest, and most creative photographer in the public eye to solve the technical issues. When a horse ran, was there ever a moment when all four of its feet were off of the ground? Many people believed it could not possibly be true. The first tries to capture the airborne image were failures. It was impossible with the cameras of the day to catch the fast horse at just the right time. The beast was just a blur, so they went back to the drawing board. The project was derailed by Moybridge being the defendant in a murder case, which is another story entirely. But once that was over, they got back to work. Moybridge Helios. hung white sheets up along the racetrack and whitened the track itself with chalk powder. This would reflect any and all light, which he knew would help the camera capture a clear image of the fast horse. Next, he designed a camera with quick shutter speed. It may have been the first of its kind, as most cameras needed a long exposure to whatever was being photographed. People would have to sit still in early photographs so that they didn't show up as a blur. That would not work with a galloping horse. Next, he placed 12 of his new cameras alongside the track where the horse was to run, and across the track he stretched a thread-like wire from each shutter. When the horse broke the wire as it ran, the camera would snap a picture. With 12 of these devices spaced out several feet along the track, he hoped to capture several pictures in order to see all the stages of the horse's motions. When everything was set, the horse took its mark. And off it went. It reached its top speed before it broke the first wire, which it did, followed by 11 more. 12 broken wires meant 12 clicks from the attached cameras, and it also meant that Helios Thank you. 
had just a few minutes to develop the plates in his darkroom with the chemicals. What did he find? Well, the developed pictures answered the question. Plain as day, the remarkable pictures showed that at certain times, the horse seemed to be flying. There were moments in its running stride when all four feet were off the ground. The results were big news and really shocked a lot of people, not just because of the horse's feet, but also because no one had ever really captured images like this before. And in addition to being technically amazing, the photos blurred the line between science and art. But when the findings were published, Leland Stanford put his name on it and took most of the credit, merely thanking Moybridge for his assistance. How do you like that? Well, Moybridge didn't either. Later, while working for the University of Pennsylvania, Moybridge went on to do similar studies of people and animals, taking over 100,000 photos of creatures in motion. He also pioneered an early form of moving picture called the zoopraxiscope. Eventually, he returned to England, where he died in 1904. Most of his stuff was left to the local museum, where it is still preserved and celebrated today. But maybe because he was constantly changing his name, they misspelled it on his tombstone. In a way, it seems kind of appropriate, but rest assured, it's Edward Moybridge under there. Not Edward Maybridge. Hey everybody, we have a You Have 30 Seconds submission this week from San Antonio, Texas, which is super awesome. Take it away! Hi, this is Aster and Rachel. We are from San Antonio, Texas. We are here to teach you about carrier pigeons in War World 1 and War World 2. They delivered messages and saved a lot of people. One in Italy named G.I. Joe flew 20 minutes, 20 miles in 20 minutes. He saved the whole town from bombing airplanes. Thank you all for getting involved and sending us a You Have 30 Seconds segment. It was great. Aster, appreciate it. If you out there who are not Aster would like to be like Aster and send in a you have 30 seconds segment the instructions are on our website thepastandthecurious.com it's super easy just get your parents to help you i'll be looking for them in my email so get crack a lacking oh what's that i think it might be yes it's it's quiz time it's quiz time it's quiz time 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 well, we have arrived at the halfway point of the show, and everyone's favorite song has let us know that it is quiz time. So, here we go. Galileo was an astronomer who built upon the work of Tycho Brahe, who you're going to learn about in a moment. Though he had the advantage of a telescope, which Tycho did not. Do you know what part of his body, Galileo's that is, is displayed at the Florence History of Science Museum? As you will also learn, unlike Tycho, Galileo kept all of his body parts until after he died. 95 years after his death, though, one huge Galileo fan somehow got the scientist's middle finger. The finger has been on display in Florence for over a century. Just a few years ago, though, a couple more of his fingers and a tooth showed up. So if anyone else out there has any more of Galileo, I guess you should send it to Florence, Italy. 
Question number two. In the 1870s, British photographer Harry Pointer became famous for taking pictures of what animal? Hint, he would have felt right at home with today's internet trends. Harry found 1870s success by making and selling pictures of his cats, which were known as the Brighton Cats. The images featured cats in poses and costumes on miniature bicycles and a whole lot more. They often included a handwritten caption, over a century before our memes. Question number three. Astronauts on the Apollo 11 mission took the first pictures from the surface of the moon. But do you know what they left behind? Among other things, including their own urine, they left behind their really expensive cameras. It's not like they forgot them, though. Once they loaded up the lunar lander with heavy specimens of moon rocks, they decided that the cameras would add too much weight. Every ounce counted, which is why they also left their urine. So they took the film and left the cameras. To this day, Apollo missions have left 12 Hasselblad brand cameras on the moon. Tycho Brahe was born to Danish nobility in 1546. And as nobility, his family in Denmark was of the upper crust, the aristocracy, the lords and ladies, which in a way is to say they had money and privilege and the appearance of honor. Despite the fancy titles and pockets full of cash, they, as most families, had their disagreements. One such disagreement was between Tycho's father and uncle. Somewhere back before Tycho was born, the two men had made an agreement that Uncle Jurgen would adopt and raise his brother's firstborn son. But when Tycho was born, his dad had a change of heart and wanted to keep the boy. Hmm, no take-backsies. A deal for a child is a deal for a child. Old Uncle Jurgen would not take no for an answer, so he kidnapped young Tycho. It sounds bad, but it worked out okay for the kid. He still got to know his parents a bit, and he lived with his uncle in a lavish home. See, Uncle Jorgen was loaded, connected, and very well educated. Everyone agreed a similar star-bright future lay ahead for the boy. Though they would send him to school to become a lawyer when he got older, he had different ideas and interests. The night sky had always fascinated him, and a few space books he was able to obtain with his noble family's money were his preferred reading. He actually found the law pretty boring. In one of his preferred science books, he found information about eclipses, when the earth is cast into shadow because the light of the sun is blocked by the moon. It's an incredible occurrence, and Tycho read that there would be an eclipse to see soon. On the exact day, at the exact time that the book predicted, he saw the eclipse with his very own two eyes. The simple fact that the movements of objects in space could be tracked, recorded, and predicted completely captured his imagination, and he thought of little else from that moment on. It's hard to do schoolwork when you stay up super late to look at the stars. You should know that sleep is important for the body and for learning. But don't worry, Tycho got plenty of sleep. He just got it during the day when he should have been studying the law. His nights were spent looking up. And since the telescope wouldn't be invented until the 1600s, he was bending his neck up until it was sore and memorizing the moving sky with his naked eye. 
In the 1500s, it was commonly believed among most astronomers and studiers of science that the solar system only changed between the Earth and the Moon. To put it another way, comets and other celestial objects between the Earth and the Moon were moving. That was easy to observe. But it was believed that anything beyond the Moon was static. It never changed. This was probably because no one had a telescope to see very far. But the fact remains, people didn't believe anything had or would ever change out past the moon. Tycho believed this to be true, like everyone else. Eventually, Tycho quit law school. He wasn't feeling it. He was feeling astronomy instead. So he dropped out and traveled Europe to seek out what knowledge he could from the leading minds of the day. Before long, he was also feeling his inflated ego. He got into an argument with another stargazer about how to solve a math problem. It got out of hand and it resulted in a duel. Many people of the time had a particular sense of honor, and if that honor was insulted, well, a fight was the only way to save that honor. Which is kind of ironic to us now. Hey, brah. Ugh, it's brahe. Hey, brah. My name is brahe. I know that. You insulted my math skills. I'm saying, hey, brah, we need to fight. Well, you have to admit that saying hey, brah is a little confusing especially since my name is Brahe. Bra, Brahe, whatever, let's duel. Grab your sword and let's go. It's on, Bra. Hey. Swords were drawn, thrusts were parried, until a blade met Tico's flesh. Is that my nose? You cut off my nose! Oh, yeah, uh, we're cool now. Can I get you a tissue? And that, friends, is more or less how Tico Brahe lost his nose. It was cut off in a duel over a math problem. But rather than walk around for the rest of his days without a schnoz, he had a new metal one made. Some say it was gold. Some say it was silver. Everyone says it was awesome. In his pocket, he carried a tin full of glue, which he would reapply to the back of the nose anytime he felt that it was running, and I mean literally running, down his face. One night, the metal-nosed man was walking down the street when his eyes saw a strange sight. Up in the sky he had memorized so thoroughly was a new bright light. It was different from a star, and from what he could tell, it was beyond the moon. But that was impossible, right? Nothing past the moon changed, and there's no way he would have missed something like this in his memorization. He rubbed his eyes. It was still there. He blinked. It was still there. He adjusted his nose, which granted wouldn't have helped him see any differently, but it was just working itself loose from all the bewilderment on his face. It was still there. He ran over to someone who was walking the same street and pointed upwards. Do you see that? Um, yeah. In the sky, up there. Yes, I said I see it, weirdo. He crossed the street and grabbed another person. Do you see that up in the sky? Yep. So I'm not crazy. Uh, do you really want me to answer that? Because you seem a little crazy right now. What is it? I don't know, dude. Aren't you the astronomer? Tico was going to figure it out. What was amazing to him was that it was something new and something changing, and it was beyond the moon. It turns out that what he was seeing was a supernova. In fact, he coined the word nova to describe this. Today, we know it as the last stage of a star, kind of like a giant explosion. Learning that this happened changed the astronomy world, and when he could prove that things happened beyond the moon's orbit, 
he became a star. Not like a star in space, but a space star. You know what I'm saying. He was like a loud, grumpy, overprivileged, noseless Neil deGrasse Tyson who liked to party. Based on his new status as rock star of stars, the king of Denmark gave him an entire island and a whole bunch of money to build an observatory to continue his research. With Tycho, they'd be at the forefront of understanding the universe. And in addition to the king's money, his dad-dad and uncle-dad died, leaving him their money too. So he had very little to worry about financially speaking. This just helped solidify his privilege of keeping his head in the stars. He built a giant castle on the island, filled it with tools for astronomy, but no telescopes, remember, they had not been invented. He had his own paper mill, he hired a bunch of people to help him, and he even got a pet elk to keep him company inside his home. Times were great for a while, if you were Tico. If you weren't Tico, and instead were just one of his employees, or one of the people who lived on the island, times probably weren't that great. He was a pretty mean boss, and apparently an even worse landlord. Plus, you'd have to dodge elk droppings wherever you went inside his home. It all came crashing to a halt anyway when the king died. That king's son took over the throne, and he was not a big fan of Tico, and he definitely didn't want to keep paying him so much money to live on that island. They had a fight, and Tico left for Prague. Tico helped shape our understanding of the stars more than any astronomer of his time. The next person to do such a thing was a student of his, Johannes Kepler. They worked together in Prague, and it was here that Tycho would meet his end. Centuries after his death, his body was exhumed or dug up from the grave because some people believed his protege, Kepler, was jealous and poisoned him. So they tested his remains for poison. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. The most likely explanation for Tycho's death was far more embarrassing and comes to us directly from Tycho's journals. Tycho was attending a banquet in Prague, and such affairs were very important events, and etiquette, or how one behaved, was very, very important. Many things were a breach of etiquette at a 16th century table at a noble banquet. Among the rules, one must never scratch their head, nor anywhere else while at the table. One must not chew or gnaw loudly at their food, for this was how animals ate. And one must never place their nose above someone else's glass or plate. This one went doubly for Tycho, since his nose was liable to fall off and land in someone's dinner. But this was not all. Tycho believed that one should not leave the table at all during a banquet, even if one has to use the restroom very badly. And at this banquet, Tycho needed to pee very badly. But his pride would not let him. Tico died from complications that arose from not letting himself use the restroom, all in the silly name of etiquette. So let this be a lesson to you, kids. When nature calls, you better answer, no matter who you're eating dinner with.
Rodrigo Tico didn't use a telescope. You might think he did, but the answer's nope. He gazed the sky with a naked eye. He lost his nose in a sword fight. Tico Tico had a pet elk. It stunk so bad, but he couldn't smell. He had no nose, he had no scope, but in space he had nothing but hope. And then he went to a party and he sat at a table He had to go pee, he was not able He couldn't get up because etiquette So he just had to sit with it And then he popped his bladder and he could not stop his death When he didn't go pee Thank you for listening to episode 39 of The Past and the Curious I am Mick Sullivan and I appreciate you greatly It's a lot of fun to do this, and I'm so glad that there are people like you out there listening. Speaking of people out there listening, I have a Patreon family to thank. Marcy Marcy! and Patrick. Patrick. Thank you, Marcy and Patrick. Patrick. And you you. too, Blue. Yeah, you too, Blue. Also, I don't want you to forget about March 3rd and the Kentucky Meat Shower. I mentioned at the beginning, we need to get a worldwide celebration of the Meat Shower happening. So I'm counting on you guys. If you'd like to get a copy of The Meat Shower, you can find it at earlyworkspress.com forward slash shop. You can find the link on my website, thepastandthecurious.com. And it's also available through Amazon and at a lot of really great booksellers like Carmichael's Books and Joseph Beth Booksellers. So keep an eye out for that. Let's party on March 3rd. If you have the chance to rate and review the podcast on your preferred podcatcher like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, Please do that. It helps a lot. Or you can just tell someone about it with your mouth because that's what mouths are for. Speaking of people telling people about things with their mouths, here are two of my friends to tell you about their podcast, Eat Your Spanish, with their mouths. Hola, amigos. Hello, friends. My name's Evan. And my name's Vanessa. Together, we're the host of the podcast Eat Your Spanish, which is the first ever Spanish learning podcast made specifically for children and families. Our podcast is filled with interactive games, sing-along songs, engaging stories, and funny characters such as Mr. Mouse Hola, amigos. and Mrs. Elephant. Well, hello there, sweethearts. So what are you waiting for? Check out our podcast Eat Your Spanish and start your exciting journey learning Spanish with us today. Oh, hey again, it's me. If you're still there, I don't know if anybody's listening at this point, but since you're here, we have been working with our friend Brianna Jacoby, who's a really great artist, and she has created 16 illustrations from the podcast, different people from the past uh, that have been featured on the show. And we have created a zine, like a catalog, like a little booklet, which is really cool and very artistic looking. At least we're almost done with it. We're still working on it. And we're going to be giving it to all of our Patreon sponsors. So if you're a Patreon sponsor, thank you. Probably going to need to get your address. Uh, and if you're not a Patreon sponsor, well, maybe you should consider it because this would be a really great time to do. So thank you very much. And look for the pictures on Instagram. <laughs>